as you're, as you're making your way back in and settling back, uh, would you turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians? You'll find it near the end of the New Testament in what some people call the T house, the five books that start with the letter T. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus. So if you find a T book, you're close. And if you're a visitor here this morning, you come at a great time because we're beginning a brand new series in this book as we just continue our study of the Bible. And just by way of introduction, uh, I grew up in a in a denominational church, and our Sunday mornings were very different than what we have here at Riverside. It followed an order of worship, what some would call a liturgical service. It followed a liturgy, and a liturgy is a series of responsive readings or sayings mixed with prayer, scripture reading, hymns, and so it had this structure to it. And every Sunday there was what's called the epistle reading. And I knew it was a part of the Bible, but I had no idea what an epistle was. And I grew up with that for years and years. And I probably wasn't the only one. One Sunday school teacher asked her second grade class, who knows what the epistles are? And one little girl's arm shot up. She said, those are the wives of the apostles. <laughs> well, not exactly. They, they are kind of related. An apostle is someone who is sent out. An epistle is a message or a letter communication that is sent out. And so epistles are just the churchy word for a letter. And you might be surprised to find that the New Testament is made up of mostly epistles, if you count the, the number of books. Um, let me just show you the breakdown. The first five books of the New Testament are historical books. The four Gospels plus the book of Acts. And so the Gospels cover the life of Jesus. And Acts gives us the birth and the growth of the church. And those are recorded history. But then you move on from there. Everything else is epistles. And they're not in chronological order. The first ones to be written don't come first. But there is a logical grouping. The first group is called the Pauline epistles because the apostle Paul wrote them. And they're broken down even further. First are his epistles to churches. And then secondly, his epistles to individuals. And then after that come the, the general epistles. Those are written by people other than Paul. So... The New Testament is about, by book count, it's about 80% epistles. And by word count, I was up late last night figuring this out, 36% of, of the New Testament are epistles. And so what's the purpose of these epistles? Well, the epistles explain and apply what's in the Gospels and the book of Acts. They show us what it looks like to live out the Gospel. And so God has given us these letters. So our new series that we're going to begin this morning is in two of those epistles. And the series title is going to be Dear Church. Because as we said on one level, this is, these are letters written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. But on a whole other level, these are letters written by God to every church, including Riverside Community Church. 
And so the epistles are the inspired word of God. And just like the rest of scripture, they were written by human writers, but the words were the result of the inspiration of God. And so because they were human writers, they'll reflect some of the the personality and the style of the writers, but every word is exactly communicating what God wanted it to. And so that's what the Bible means when it says all scripture is God breathed. It's inspired by God, penned by human writers. So again, their purpose is to show us what it looks like when the gospel is lived out. And there's no better example of this than the church in Thessalonica. And so our message title this morning, the series again is Dear Church. The message title is A Model Church. And we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's 10 verses. There's four parts to this. First, we're going to look at the expanded facts in verse 1. We're going to look at the exclusive thanks in verses 2 and 3. The exceptional choice in 4 and 5. And then finally, the exemplary faith in 6 through 10. So short text, long outline, but you'll see hopefully how all of that fits together. And so since there's only 10 verses in this chapter, I want to start by just reading through it with you. And I'll be reading from the NIV 1984 translation, and then we'll begin to work our way through it. So chapter one reads, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is God's word. This is God's letter to the Thessalonians and to us this morning. And so the greeting comes from the Apostle Paul and his two traveling companions, Silas and Timothy. But the letter itself is penned by Paul. And it's addressed to the church of the Thessalonians. And I just want to start by looking at some of the background. I'm calling it the expanded facts. We need some context for what was happening in this church. And this church was, in fact, founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. And so I want to look a little closer at that journey. This is a map that covers most of the land in the Bible. Um, You'll notice it's centered on the Mediterranean Sea. 
And to look at Paul's journey, we just want to zoom in on this a little bit. And here's a few stats on his journey. We'll come back to those. But Paul starts out with Silas, and they head up from his home in Antioch, and they go up to Lystra, Derby and Lystra, and it's there that Paul meets this young man who's already a believer, and his name is Timothy. Timothy joins him on the remainder of this journey. Now, they're going to head up through Asia Minor, but remember, they're kept from the Holy, by the Holy Spirit from preaching the gospel there. And so they move on to Troas, where he saw the vision of the man from Macedonia calling him. And so they head over to Philippi, where they planted a church, and where they were thrown in prison and miraculously released and then kicked out of town. All that happened in Philippi. And so they moved over to Thessalonica. And it's there that Acts 17 is speaking about when it says some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. And so there in Thessalonica, this church is born. Now, this is the city of Thessalonica today, but it's called Thessaloniki. But you can see in the distance the Aegean Sea, and off to the left, there's some ruins from the Byzantine era. And it's still, it's the second most important city in all of Greece today. And it was important then too, because it was on at the crossroads of two major Roman roads. One of those is called the Via Ignacia, and it ran eastward from Italy through Thessalonica, and on, and then there was another road that ran north-south. So here's part of that Via Ignacia today. You can still see it. The Roman roads were amazing. They've stood up for over 2,000 years. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy would have traveled on this very road that we're looking at. And he would use this for the second missionary journey. Here it is running through the hills toward Neapolis, which is just east of Thessalonica. And here's where it runs through the forum at Philippi. So they would have traveled this road into Philippi, and they would have been on this road when they're kicked out of Philippi and headed over towards Thessalonica. So... This baby church is planted in Thessalonica. And then in Acts chapter 17, verse 5, it says, But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Here we go again. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy were forced to leave just three weeks after the church was planted. Well, going back to our map then, they're forced out of Thessalonica, so they head next door to Berea. The, the Jews followed them there, kicked them out of Berea. And so Paul heads down to Corinth to be joined later by T Silas and Timothy. And so it's here in Corinth where we believe the letters of First and Second Thessalonians were written. These were the First two letters, it's believed that Paul wrote his first epistles chronologically. So he hung out in Corinth for 18 months. And this is where he did the writing. And so after 18 months, he finished his journey. He left for Ephesus, accompanied by Aquila and Priscilla, and over to Caesarea. 
and then back north to his home in Antioch. So look at this journey, 2,800 miles, a lot of it on foot. It began around 49 AD, not that many years after the Lord's resurrection. It lasted three years. Half of that was moving around, half of it was staying in Corinth. And you can see there the companions who were with him on at least parts of the journey. So all of this as an introduction to verse 1, which reads, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. And it should be a pretty familiar greeting. Paul used it in almost every one of his letters. Grace and peace to you. And we see it in many of the other epistles as well. He, he extends this greeting. And, and in fact, this greeting is so common, grace and peace. And they always go together like that, that some have called it the Siamese twins of the New Testament. But here's the thing about it. You will never see peace come before grace. You won't see it in the Bible, and you won't see it in life. And there's a reason for that. Grace must always come first. And as I put on the screen, you'll never have the peace of God until you receive the grace of God. Grace is God's free gift of salvation, of forgiveness for our sins. It's what allows us to be reconciled to a holy God. And until we receive that grace, we're at war with God. We're his enemy. But God loves us. And so he offers his free grace. And once we're reconciled and in a relationship with God, we can have peace with God. Grace must always come first. And he makes it available freely. So this is kind of the backdrop for the letter that follows. I want to look next at the exclusive thanks. And beginning in verse 2, it says, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So these verses are all about thankfulness. And it's perfect because what's Thursday? Thanksgiving. It's, I think it's God's providence there coordinating our schedule. I really didn't plan it this way, but here we are. And just a warning, this just might change your whole practice in regard to giving thanks. I want to take a look first. Paul mentions three things that the Thessalonians are doing for which he is thankful and those three things are their work, their labor, oops, here we go, their work, their labor, and their endurance. These three things he's thankful for. Yet, look what he says about them. He doesn't thank the Thessalonians. He's thanking God for the Thessalonians. And as the previous slide said, you're going to find that in Scripture, thanksgiving is directed almost exclusively to God. And I'll qualify that here. Look at, look at what Paul says. He says he's thanking them for their work, 
produced by faith. Who's the author and perfecter of our faith? God is. He's thanking God for their labor prompted by love. Who pours his love into our hearts? God does. He's thankful for their endurance. And it's endurance inspired by hope. Well, who gives us a hope in a future? Who's the God of all hope? God is, right? So in all of these things, their work, their labor, their endurance, these all point to God. And that's where Paul directs his thanksgiving. Now you might say, I don't know. I think it's just the way he worded it in this passage. Well, I searched the Bible and I found 162 references to thanks or thanksgiving. How many of them do you think relate to giving thanks to God versus giving thanks to other people? Maybe 50-50, 70-30? No, it's like 99 to 1. I only found two references of people giving thanks to other people. And one of those is a reference more to being blessed than to thankfulness. The real meaning of that is blessing. And the other is a rhetorical question and it implies something that a person shouldn't do. So in the Bible, thanksgiving is directed almost exclusively to God. Now I'll give you a challenge. You find a verse that talks about thanking somebody for something they've done. I, I'm pretty sure I checked them all. There might be one in there I missed. But take a look. It, and this might be surprising. But let me just give you some examples. Because even when the Bible mentioned the loving acts of other people. The thanks is given directly to God. First uh, Thessalonians 3.9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all of the joy we have received in the presence of our God because of you? How can we thank God enough for you? He didn't say, how can we thank you enough? He said, how can we thank God enough for you? 2 Corinthians 9.11, you will be writ enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Your generosity, thanksgiving to God. The very next verse, 2 Corinthians 9.12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Well, that almost sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? This person does something for me, they're generous toward me, and I give thanks to God. Now, I'm not saying that it would be wrong to thank somebody. It's not unbiblical, meaning it doesn't go against biblical principles, but it is non-biblical, meaning you just won't find examples of that in the Bible. Again, look for yourself. The thanksgiving is given to God. And so this kind of changes how we think about thanksgiving, doesn't it? What about when we're writing our, our cards of thanks? Maybe, maybe we can no longer say, well, thank you. But maybe we should be saying, I thank God for you. 
Because he has motivated the work that you're doing, the love that you're showing, the endurance that you have. Those are motivated by a loving God pouring into your life. And so we see this in these opening verses of 1 Thessalonians. I like the story of a Christian lady who lived next door to an atheist. And he would overhear her through the window offering all of these prayers and this thanksgiving to God and pouring out her needs before the Lord. And he would make fun of her. He would ridicule her. Well, one day she was in need of groceries. And so she's praying to the Lord, God, I know that you'll provide my needs. You always have. I know that you'll provide for me. Thank you, Lord. And so the atheist thinks, hmm, I'll fix her. I'll go buy some groceries. And he does. And he puts them on her porch. And then he hides in the bushes to see what will happen. And so the lady comes out and sees these groceries on her front porch. And she starts praising God. Thank you, God, Lord. I knew you would provide. Thank you, God. Well, the atheist jumps out of the bushes and says, you crazy old lady. God didn't supply those groceries for you. I did. And she starts running down the street. Well, praise the Lord. Thank you, God. And he tries to track her down. He finally catches her and he says, are you crazy? Didn't you hear what I said? She said, oh, yes. I always knew God would provide the groceries I needed. But I didn't know he'd make the devil pay for them. <laughs> See, Paul recognized that even when delivered by human hands... Every good and perfect gift is from above. So how often are people the object of our thanks versus God? Now, if you were here at church during the week this week, you would have seen some people doing a lot of work on our building. Not just work, but labor. I mean, toil. And they're doing it because they want this place of worship to be welcoming to people, to be comfortable for our church family. They want others to come in and have their life transformed by the word of God and by his spirit. And so they're working on the building. Well, their work is produced by faith. Their labor is prompted by love. And if they finish the job, which they will, their endurance will be inspired by the hope they have in Christ. And so according to God's word, who should we be thanking for the work they're doing? We should be thanking primarily God. It doesn't have to be a big, long prayer. Paul says, I mention them in my prayers. That's what remember is a literal translation. I mention them. God, thank you for these Thessalonians, for their work, for their love, their labor, their endurance. Thank you for inspiring them. He remembers them. He mentions them in his prayers. So... Just think again about the implications of this. You're writing out some thank you cards. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you, or I thank God for you. Now, again, I don't want to be like, I don't want to be dogmatic about that. I don't want to make too big a deal out of this, but I think it's right that we express our thanks, give thanks where thanks is due, right? And in doing so, we're reminded of the reality that every good and perfect gift is from above. And we're living that out and we're modeling that for other people. Incidentally, who do unbelievers have to give thanks to? You know, I kind of wonder, Thanksgiving, who are they thanking? The universe? 
Do you know there's, this is a whole thing, thanking the universe. You can find websites on this. Thanking their lucky stars. We thank the Lord God Almighty for the good gifts he's given us. So, the third thing we want to look at, that's their exclusive things. Let's look at the exceptional choice in verses 4 through 5. It reads, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And then this last half of the verse kind of belongs with the next section. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Well, this is an interesting verse. Some see it as being very selective. In other words, if God has chosen you to believe, then his word will come to you with power. But if he hasn't chosen you to believe, then his word will have no power. And some refer to this as an effectual versus an ineffectual calling. I'm going to be real transparent. Personally, I find the notion of an ineffectual call to be contrary to the character of God. To me, it's deceptive. It's like a divine hoax. It'd be like Jesus saying, come to me, all you you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Except you and you and you and you. I haven't chosen you, but come to me, all of you. It's, it's deceptive, and it just, to me, it doesn't seem to fit. Here's the thing. God never calls us or commands us to do anything that he doesn't also give us the means and the power to do. Even when the crippled man, he said, stretch out your hand. The guy could have said, I can't. It's, it's shriveled up. Like, I can't do it. But he had to try in faith. And as he stretched out his hand, God healed it. But it took the man acting in faith. And then God's power came along and enabled him to do what Jesus told him to do. Stretch out your hand. Maybe you're familiar with the term fatalism. It's the word fate, not fatal. And fatalism is the belief that a person's salvation or damnation is determined predetermined and it's inevitable a person is either born to believe and be saved or born to not believe and perish and so this fate is sealed for them before birth and there's nothing they can do about it it's their fate but I wrestle with that teaching how can you teach a little child that God loves them but he doesn't want to save them How can you teach a child that there's a four out of five chance that when you grow up, you have no hope of salvation because God didn't choose you? I struggle with that. Now, I realize that good, godly, faithful people can have different views on this, and it's controversial. But, and most most people with their views can cite a handful of verses to support them. But here's the thing. When you look at the whole of Scripture, you see both the sovereignty of God... And you see the responsibility of mankind. You see them both. And so, how you reconcile these two truths can be a bit of a challenge. But dismissing one of them or the other of them will result in biblical error. Both are presented throughout Scripture. 
And so verse 4 and 5 say, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. So did they believe because they were chosen or were they chosen because they believed? Well, as you consider this, look what the very next chapter says in chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of truth, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in those who believe. And when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 10, it says this, speaking of those who are perishing, unbelievers, it says, they perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They're not perishing because they weren't chosen. They're perishing because they refused to love the truth. They didn't receive it. They didn't accept it and so be saved. So both these verses speak clearly of mankind's responsibility. So again, you'll see both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind in Scripture. Dismissing either one of them will lead you into biblical error. So, let's move on to something less controversial. Like politics. (laughs) No, we won't go there. Let's look at the Thessalonians' exemplary faith. I think I'm back on track. There we go. Their exemplary faith. We're in verse 6, but I believe the thought really begins in the middle of verse 5. I think that's where the number 6 should have started. Because that's where the thought changes. So the second half of verse 5 says, You know how we lived among you for your sake. And then verses 6 and 7. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul and Silas and Timothy were very conscious of everything they did when they were in Thessalonica. Because they knew that the people around them were watching them. They knew that the things they were doing or didn't do would influence the people who were watching them. It's no different for you as a believer. People are watching you. They're watching what you do. And what you do or don't do will influence people around you. Listen to what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and do not steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. How about that? This is an instruction to slaves of the day. I don't, any slaves here, I don't think anybody is a slave in bondage. But what he's saying is, Whatever your circumstances, our behavior should make the teaching about God our Savior attractive to people around us. Now you might not be a slave, but maybe you don't like your job. Maybe your boss doesn't like you. Maybe you would say, I'm in a toxic work environment. Maybe it's just a boring, mundane 
job. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. The way you act should make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. Because people are watching. What are you like on a Monday morning? Believer? What are they like? How do they talk about their boss? How do they interact with other people? People are watching. They want to see it. And it should be beautiful and attractive to them. They should want to know how is it that they can come in on a Monday morning after a long weekend and just be so joyful. How can they serve so sacrificially their employer and their fellow workers? We should look different. That doesn't always happen, does it? The late comedian George Carlin said, I think we should all treat each other like Christians. I, however, will not be responsible for the consequences. Yeah, see, he knew that the way Christians treat other people is not always that good. Shame on us, right? Shame on us. That should never be said of us. People are watching us at work and elsewhere. They're watching what we do, how we act. What is our countenance like? You know, countenance is like the joy of the Lord on our faces. We should be radiant because how we are, what we do, how we act matters because people are watching. So Paul writes in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Here's a challenging thought. What if they became imitators of you and me? What if a whole group of people imitated you? What would they be like? Would they be faithful? Would they be strong? Mature? Would they be men and women of integrity? Would they be godly? Would they themselves be a model for other believers? The Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, he was an example for others to follow. So Paul says that these Thessalonians, they were faithful in spite of severe suffering. That was their circumstances, severe suffering. They weren't fair-weather followers of the Lord. Many people weigh Christianity based on what they can get out of it. And this is why the prosperity gospel is so popular. It's why Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, was on the bestseller list for over two years. And it was number one for a period of time. He sold over 8 million copies. Your Best Life Now. Well, he promised in that book a life of health, abundance, and victory. What if the title were something like Embracing Severe Suffering? <laughs> you think it would have made the charts? Ooh, I get, no, not at all. Your best life now. You can be healthy, wealthy, prosperous if you have enough faith. That's a prosperity gospel. The Thessalonians were not experiencing health, abundance, victory. Not in, that, not in this life. They weren't. They're experiencing severe suffering. And yet, they were faithful. They were an example to all the other believers. Look at verse 7. 
And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and and Achaia. They They were a model church. And the imagery of a model is that of a die used to strike a coin. They fashion the die in the exact pattern that they want all the other coins to look like. And then they take a piece of malleable metal and they place the die over it and they strike it and it stamps that image on the die, on the, on the coin. That's the idea behind the word model or example. Paul is saying that the Thessalonians were exactly like what he wanted the other believers and unbelievers to look like. They were a model church. He couldn't say this about every church he planted, could he? It probably grieved him to write this to the church in Corinth, where he's staying right now, writing to the Thessalonians. He would later write to the church in Corinth, and he would say, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. They weren't an example. But the Thessalonians, they took the word of God and they feasted on it. And they grew up and they matured quickly despite severe suffering. And so verse 8 says, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Even in St. Charles, we're reading today about the faith of the Thessalonians. Well, let's look back at our map for a moment here. Macedonia was the area north of Greece, just north of Thessalonica. And Achaia was the name given to southern Greece. And remember, they're at these crossroads, these Roman roads. And so word of their faith spread quickly to all of these other communities, this is covering an area of hundreds of miles. Even back then, the word of their faith spread quickly. Well, Paul goes on to say, therefore, we did not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You know, One of the most powerful testimonies you can ever have is that of a changed life and the fruit that comes from that. That's a powerful testimony. We can go back to our unbelieving family members at Thanksgiving and we can tell them all about the gospel, which we should do at appropriate times and in appropriate ways. But more powerful yet is to let them see how it's changed us. To talk about what God's doing in your life. The testimony of a changed life is powerful. Let them see you. You're not the same person I used to know. What happened? What changed? Now you have their attention and you have a great opportunity. Verse 9 says they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is a conscious choice they made. When Deborah and I were in Thailand... One of the temples that we visited was, was known as Wat Phanan Chong. And this is in that ancient capital of Ayutthaya. Um, and this temple is a stunning building architecturally. It was built in 1324. 
But in the center of it is a 62 foot high statue of a seated Buddha, all plated in gold. And lining the walls around this whole temple are 10,800 smaller statues of Buddha. There's a big one in the middle, but see all those little niches? I think there's about five or 600 of them just in this picture. Every one of those has a little golden statue of Buddha in it. And that's just one temple, 10,800 statues of Buddha. And the people would go there to worship and offer prayers and gifts to these statues, even though they were powerless to do anything for them. That's not unlike the people of Thessalonica before they heard the gospel. But when they heard the gospel, many, not all, many turned from worshiping idols to serving the living and true God. Imagine the changes that must have involved. The things that people would have, around them would have seen. It would mean a change in perspective on who God is, his nature and character. He's not a lifeless statue of wood or stone. He's a living, loving, powerful, personal God. And they came into a personal relationship with him. They were adopted by him. It means a change in perspective on who they are. They're not just some cosmic accident. They're God's special creation. And now they're his recreation. Created in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. It would be all new to them. Brand new. God loved them so much that he paid a tremendous price for their salvation. It would mean a new perspective on others too. Now they're called to love and serve other people to put their needs before even their own. So the people would have seen this tremendous transformation in these Thessalonians. And it would have been beautiful and attractive the teachings about our God and Savior would have been attractive to those who saw the Thessalonians. So, verse 10 then it says, it continues, and, and they were waiting for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You're going to find that a major theme of First and Second Thessalonians is end times. And it's kind of neat, because there's a lot of stuff happening in our world around us? How do we view that? How do we interpret that? How do we see that through the lens of scripture? A major, major theme is end times. And this in verse 10, what it's referring to by wrath more specifically is referring to a time of tribulation on the earth. It's talking about when he returns, Jesus returned, and the wrath here is a time of great tribulation upon the earth. This is made more clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. It says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And very clearly in that chapter, the context is wrath, God's righteous judgment poured out upon the earth. He didn't appoint us to suffer that. He rescues us from that. Now, it is also right to apply that to eternal wrath. But these verses are speaking, I believe, specifically about the tribulation. And so that's the context of it. 
The church will not suffer wrath. This is one reason why we teach from the perspective of a pre-tribulation rapture of Jesus returning for his church and removing them before the great tribulation. He rescues us from the coming wrath. We'll, we'll have a chance as we get further into these books to, to look at that, to look at the timeline and the events of the end times, to convert, compare it to other uh, beliefs about those end times, other eschatological systems. But I want to wrap up just what we've covered. What has God shown us already? What has he written to us in chapter 1? of First Thessalonians. Oop, look, I'm behind on the slides again. No surprise there. So, let's just summarize this. Paul opens with this warm greeting of grace and peace. And we saw that you'll never have the peace of God until you receive the grace of God. Grace has to come first. Most people here are enjoying the peace of God. Some are not. Some are still enemies of God. You're living in darkness. God wants you to receive his grace, to be forgiven, to receive eternal life. You can do that this morning. Thanksgiving's coming up. And Thanksgiving in the Bible is directed almost exclusively to God. It reinforces that even when delivered by human hands, every good and perfect gift is from above. So God should be the primary, the primary object of our thanks. Again, I'm not going to say it's wrong to thank other people, but it would be wrong to thank other people at the exclusion of God. God never calls or commands us to do anything that he also doesn't give us the means and the power to do. Whatever the circumstances, our behavior should make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. It should draw others to the reality and the beauty of Jesus Christ because of what they see in our lives. One of the most powerful testimonies is that of a changed life. When they see and hear what God has done for you. Don't just tell them about what God can do. Show them what he's done for you. And then finally, Jesus rescues believers from the coming wrath. Wrath in the tribulation and wrath for all eternity. Praise the Lord. These are some of the things I think God wants us to see in this very personal letter to us in this church in Riverside this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this book, the Bible. Because it's not just, it is a personal letter to the Thessalonians, but it's a personal letter to us too. And God, it's a love letter. It tells, you, it tells us how much you love us and how far you've gone to save us. And God, I pray that each one of us would accept it as it really is. The very word of God. Lord, I pray that you would use it to shape and transform us. Transform the way we think and the way we speak and the way we live. God, help Riverside to be a model church. God, that other people would see your love in us, Lord. There's so many beautiful examples 
in our church body. And I thank you for those. I thank you for them, God, for the love and the hope, the endurance, the hard work that comes from faith in you, God. Help us to be a model church. Help us to live lives that are a beautiful reflection of who you are, attractive to the world around us and pointing others to the reality of Jesus Christ. And God, we want this. We want it for your kingdom and for your glory. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Are you standing?